invite you to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 this morning. We're going to be looking at Tempted in the Wilderness part 2. Tempted in the Wilderness part 2 where we see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being put to a very severe test as he is 40 days and beyond 40 days tempted by Satan. Tempted by Satan. Last week we looked at Mark's account of the temptation, which is just two verses, and today we're more going to be focused upon what Matthew says and what Luke say about this temptation period. Before we come there, let's just remind ourselves of what Mark says with regard to this event. We'll pick it up at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Verse 12, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. I want us to take a moment now, take about 30 seconds, and I want to just give you and myself just a a time of silence that as we come to God's word today that we would ask that he would bless it to our souls. The Spirit of God would speak to each one of us. Let's do that now. Father, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things in your word this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a hymn written in uh, somewhere between the 1600s and 1700s by Johann B. Freisten. It says, Rise my soul to watch and pray, and from thy sleep awaken. Be not by the evil day unawares overtaken. For the foe, well we know, oft as harveth, reapeth, while the Christian sleepeth. Watch against the devil's snares, lest asleep he find thee. For indeed no pains he spares to deceive and blind thee. Satan's prey, oft are they who secure are sleeping and no watch are keeping. Watch, let not the wicked world with its power defeat thee. Watch, lest with her pomp unfurled she betray and cheat thee. Watch and see, lest there be faithless friends to charm thee, who but seek to harm thee. 
Watch against thyself, my soul, lest with grace thou trifle. Let not self thy thoughts control, nor God's mercy stifle. Pride and sin lurk within. All thy hopes to scatter, heed not when they flatter. There's two more verses of that marvellously penetrating song of warning to us. And it's a warning which Mark brings to us today through his gospel and a warning which is repeated not only in Mark's gospel but Matthew's gospel and also Luke's gospel. Come with me to our main text this morning of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. Both Mark and Matthew and Luke, all of them, speak of this place called the wilderness. We, we know it as the Judean wilderness. We cannot identify specifically where it was that Christ was tempted. Certainly he was at the Jordan when John baptized him. And then it says the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And we can only imagine that was further into the isolation of this wilderness place. But we don't know exactly where the place was. Just by way of um, some photos, we have here on our first slide a photo of the Jordan River today, obviously. It's the Jordan River, a part of it today. Um, There's another stretch of the Jordan. When we talk about the Wilderness, the Judean wilderness. This is a photo of a part of it today. I've actually been there and looked out upon this wilderness area. It's somewhere between Jericho and Jerusalem, uh, and you can see for yourself the barrenness, the, the the loneliness. Mark says that it was a place where Jesus was with the wild beasts. And um, even to this day, there are wolves, there are serpents. Um, in Jesus' day, there were lions, um, jackals, hyenas. Uh, Bible commentators tell us about. Here's another photo. Really brings a stark reality, doesn't it, to the place that our Lord was for 40 days. Alone, utterly alone from human beings. With Satan, with the wild beasts um, and the angels attending him in such a place. Let's read what Matthew says. And again we see at the end of chapter 3 that it was immediately following the baptism of Christ. He went from the height of the wonder of that moment of affirmation from heaven the father his voice came out from within heaven and proclaimed him to be his beloved son and then chapter 4 verse 1 then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry and the tempter came and said to him If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city 
and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came. And we're ministering to him. I want to talk for a little moment before we get into the actual three temptations that came after the 40 days. It's interesting to me that Mark and Luke speak about Christ being tempted for 40 days. And then Matthew focuses in on this time after the 40 days where he comes with his culminating temptations. Perhaps the climax of all the temptations that had begun. Um, at the beginning of the 40 days, when Christ is at his weakest, perhaps, when Christ is further away from that majestic revelation from heaven where the Father affirmed him, it was then that Satan came to ply his greatest temptations. But Christ was tempted throughout those times as he fasted, no doubt as he was in communion with the Father, preparing for the ministry that lay before him we need to ask this question this morning what was the nature of Christ's temptations we see what the specific temptations were but how is it that the son of God could really be tempted have you ever thought of that were these temptations just kind of brushed off by Satan passively as if they weren't really real temptations, or were they really real? The question that I posed to you last week, and I'm sure you've been thinking about every day this week, um, was could Christ have sinned? Could Christ have really sinned? And I think that's an important thing to, to ask. And I just want to say this morning that theologians and Bible teachers have discussed this issue through the centuries. And there have been basically two viewpoints with sound and conservative Bible teachers landing on each side. In answer to the question, could Christ have sinned, some believe in what's called the peccability of Christ. That's the theological word. It comes from the Latin. Um, They believe in the peccability of Christ. You say, what is that? This is the belief that Christ could have sinned when he was tempted. Uh, We might say that Christ was able not to sin, but he could have really sinned. Follow that. Others believe in the impeccability of Christ. And this is the viewpoint that Christ could not have sinned. There was no possibility that the Son of God could have sinned. He was the impeccable Christ. And we might phrase this, that he was not able to sin as compared to able not to sin. 
The answer to whether Christ was peccable or impeccable in this sense is a question related to the doctrine of Christ's natures. Christ had two natures in one person, right? He had his human nature connected with his divine nature so that he was totally 100% God and 100% man. He was the God-man, Jesus Christ. And when he came into this world in the incarnation, humanity was joined with deity in a way that is obviously a mystery. Um, if, you, if you want the theological term that describes that, it's called the hypostatic union. If you want to pull that out sometime and just kind of gain some theological points, maybe uh, hypostatic union is what we're talking about. And that is to say that Christ is one person with two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. He is the God-man. For example... In terms of Christ's deity, his nature is God, he is worshipped. On the left there, he is prayed to. Uh, he was called God. Um, remember Thomas, after his period of doubting, he said, my Lord and my God, and Jesus did not rebuke him. Jesus received his worship, received that uh, ascription, the deity. He's called the Son of God. He's sinless. He knew all things. He gives eternal life. And Colossians 2.9 says the fullness of deity dwells in him. But on the other hand, this God-man and his human nature, he worshipped the Father. He prayed to the Father. He was called man. He was called the Son of Man. He was tempted. He grew in wisdom. He died. And he has a body of flesh and bones. And the reality of Christ's temptation is connected, obviously, with this reality that he was tempted. It was the reality and the fact that he was human that made him able to be tempted. They were real temptations, but you say, Brian, uh, could Christ really have sinned? And I would just say that my own conviction, as I shared last week, would be that Christ is impeccable. The Lord Jesus Christ was impeccable then as he is now because his humanity was connected with deity and one of the attributes of deity is that deity is sinless. Um, and that God cannot be tempted by evil as James chapter 1 says. He's the impeccable Christ. You say, well, then his temptations were not real. If you say that Christ could not have sinned, then that doesn't that say that his temptations are superfluous and had no effect upon him? They weren't real? Well, just think about this. We ask the question in light of what Matthew records here, was Christ passive in his temptations here? And we'd have to say no. Satan was allowed to engage with Christ in amazing ways, Christ himself was not passive. He had to exercise his faith. He had to use the word of God, which he had um, prepared with throughout 30 years of his life and learning of the word of God so that he was able to take up the sword of the Spirit and give an answer. That's not passive. That was 
actively engaging Satan with a, a defense, a response to Satan's temptations. Uh, and furthermore, Hebrews tells us, which we read last week, Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of people. And watch this, for because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he was, says that Christ really was tempted. And more than that, that when he was tempted, he actually suffered. And I've been trying to get my head around what that might entail. And I'm... Um, I want to suggest to you that though there was not the possibility of Christ to sin because he, I believe he was impeccable, there was nevertheless the proximity of the temptation to his holy soul brought, brought a jolt and brought a, a sense of suffering to his holy being to be presented even with the possibility of sinning. And it's interesting to me that Hebrews doesn't say because he himself was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. It's because he himself has suffered when tempted. He understands that experience. He understands that he is our merciful and gracious high priest. He knows what it is to be tempted and to suffer when tempted. Now, whether you land as in the impeccability of Christ or the peccability of Christ, and as I said before, there's many um, wonderful Bible teachers, conservative, evangelical, who take the Bible seriously, who land on both sides. And and one of those who discovered this week that lands on the peccability side, the belief that Christ could have sinned, was none other than R.C. Sproul. And um, it was interesting to me. Perhaps we cannot be 100% sure, but one thing that we can be sure of from the Scriptures is that Jesus is presented as sinless at all times. Whether he could have sinned or whether he couldn't have sinned, the reality was that when he faced every temptation, he never once yielded to it. For our sake, he became sin who knew no sin. First Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. In 1 John 3 verse 5, you know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. He's the spotless Lamb of God. He's the spotless Son of God, undefiled. Um, And praise God, for that reason, he was fit to be a saviour on behalf of sinners. So Satan knew what was at stake here in the wilderness. Well, let's move on to another thought. And what we see here, I suggest to you, is Satan's approach. Satan is wily. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, talks, uh, verse 10 and following, talks about all the wiles of the devil. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he, in chapter 2, he talks about we are not unaware of Satan's devices, his methods, his, his methodios. He's wily, he's crafty, even in Genesis chapter 3, right? The serpent was more crafty than all the other animals. 
Um, these temptations are complex. These temptations are fraught with deception and uh, half-truths and misquotations of Scripture and subtlety. Um, and the more I've been meditating on these for two weeks and I still haven't myself got my head around the um, depths of the subtlety with which Satan was coming against Christ. And that's just to say that uh, through human history, some 4,000 plus years, Satan has been perfecting the art of temptation. And here he gives utmost, his highest effort to beguile the Son of God. Let's come to his temptations. Oh, we're not going to get done this morning. Let's look at his first temptation as Matthew records it here. Um, verse 2 tells us that after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. It would seem from these words that throughout the 40 days, Jesus, born along by the Holy Spirit, ministered to perhaps by angels, or in the purity of that communion and the strength of that communion with the Father, he didn't experience hunger, perhaps. But certainly following those 40 days and 40 nights, he experienced this natural human desire of hunger, desire for hunger. He's in the wilderness, and that instantly reminds us of God's people in the wilderness for 40 years, right? 40 years they were in the wilderness. And the passage that we read from this morning, that God brought them there to humble them and test them and teach them that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So it's appropriate that in answer to Satan's temptations, Christ would quote from the book of Deuteronomy. You say, wherein lies the temptation? Well, here is Christ. It was part of the will of God for Christ to be in the wilderness for this time. The Spirit of God led him there, right? In verse 1, it wasn't his own idea. It wasn't Satan's idea even. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Purpose was to be tempted. It was the Spirit that led him there. So this time of fasting, this time of being without food and communion with the Father was part of the will of God for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As it was for the nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt. The question is, would Christ in the wilderness, in the absence of fulfilling the natural desires of his body, grumble? Would he complain? Would he become angry with God? Would he desire to turn back from his mission? Would he seek to fulfill his own needs rather than keep trusting in his Father? Satan's opening line is, if you are the Son of God, or since you are the Son of God, take these stones and turn them into bread. Command these stones to become loaves of bread, verse 3. You say, why does he say, if you are the Son of God? I think here you see part of the subtlety. 
If you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, what you are currently experiencing is incompatible with that reality. You see, I, I, think, there's, I think there's like, so here's Satan's subtlety. If you are the Son of God, and then he goes straight to command these stones to turn into bread, I think there's more to be said and implied here in this temptation. If you are the Son of God, then what in the world are you doing out here in the wilderness? Suffering hunger from all outward appearances, it looks like your heavenly Father, whom you claim is your Father, and you're the Son of God, the Son of privilege and co-equality and so forth. What are you doing in the wilderness? Why are you here? It's not compatible. It doesn't add up. So use some of your power in order to satisfy your desire for bread. This is subtle. It's in effect Satan saying, you can't trust your father. You can't rely on him to meet your needs. You need to meet your, your needs yourself. Grab some satisfaction. Use your divine prerogatives and your rightful position as the Son of God to meet your needs. No longer walk by faith. No longer depend on the Father. Trust yourself. I think therein lies the temptation. Now, is it wrong to hunger? It's a natural desire, isn't it? Um, It's not wrong to hunger, even if you're the Son of God. He had a true human nature, and therefore he was uh, subject to hunger pains. But Christ clearly saw the temptation for what it is, a temptation to distrust the Father, a temptation to take things into his own hands. And so he answered with the appropriate word from Deuteronomy, it is written. And all three times he says, it is written, right? He appeals to the highest authority in his life. It is written. That is the parameter of my life's responses to everything. My highest authority is not my inner desire, which I want satisfied. The highest uh, ruling authority in my life is the Word of God. Therein lies my whatever my response will be. It is written. There's real authority as Christ says that. And there's real identification. And there's real standing firm on solid ground and saying, this is my response, Satan. I shall not live by bread alone. I will live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, the will of God as revealed in the word of God is my ultimate authority, to which everything else in my life is subservient, even my own hunger. And I will not violate the will of God or the word of God in order to do something to satisfy even a natural desire. Later on in Jesus' ministry, you have the account of um, Jesus had fed the 5,000. And then in John chapter 6, you had all these crowds that were seeking him. And they were following after him. And they, they followed him around. And Jesus said to them, confronted them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're not, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, 
Not because you saw the miraculous signs which pointed to who I really was as the Messiah and the Son of God, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The reason you're following me is because you had a nice lunch and you want me to do that again. You're following me for the bread. Therein lies your motivation, not the spiritual motivation. And Jesus said at that moment, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And is that not the, not the case in our world today? Is that not the temptation that comes to us that we spend and we labor and we, we go after as the key thing in our life, the satisfaction of our desires, whether they be sinful desires or whether they be natural desires. We make that the highest authority of our life rather than the Word of God. We spend and we uh, are spent in the pursuit of making our lives satisfied. And Jesus comes and he says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, which is just another way of saying man does not live on bread alone. The purpose of your life is not to eat, drink and be merry and have your every need met, like Maslow's theories of psychology would say, that man is a bundle of needs and the purpose is to fulfill those needs and only then can he properly assign himself to other priorities. It's, it's a lie. What is the world doing today? They're after the meeting of their needs and their desires. They're laboring for the food that perishes. And Jesus says, man doesn't live on bread alone. You can have all the food that you want. You can have every physical desire met, but you can still perish and go to hell. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul. That happens when our priorities are wrong. That happens when we place bread alone as the primary thing in our lives rather than the Word of God. Paul said it and we kind of came up at resolved on Thursday night um, where you see Paul in Philippians 4 and he's talking about the giving of the Philippians. Remember? And he's, he's not so much worried about himself but he's saying to him he's saying to the philippians look i know what it is to suffer hunger i know what it is to learn contentment i'm not i'm not upset with you because i had to suffer hunger because your gift didn't come at the right time rather he said through all those things i learned contentment and then he said that wonderful verse in chapter 4 verse 13 i can do all things through christ who strengthens me. In other words, if God, in the will of God for my life, calls me to suffer hunger, calls me to uh, put aside the natural desire that, that are in my life because my higher authority is the Word of God and the principles of the Word of God, then I'll do it. Then I'll do it. The same temptation comes to us today, doesn't it? Desire for the acceptance with people. I want to be accepted. I want to be loved. I want friends. And so forth. And that's a natural desire. But when the approval of men becomes more important than the approval of God, you are yielding to temptation. 
There's a perfect example of that in John 12 where some of the religious authorities uh, believed in Christ, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. When push came to shove, the key principle upon which their life was built was seeking the glory of men rather than of God. I ask you this morning, are you willing to go against the flow because the will of God and the word of God is a higher priority than even your own personal comfort, even your uh, personal relationships with people? In the sexual area, God created us as sexual beings and the longing to satisfy these desires is usually strong. And again, what does Satan do? He tempts us to find satisfaction outside the will of God. Outside the bounds of God-honoring and God-designed marriage, as God defines it, is between one man and one woman in a covenant commitment for life till death do us part. The New Zealand government recently legislated a lie. And the lie was that, in one sense, that man lives on bread alone. That the satisfaction of your own desires is the chief end of your life and that if the biblical and traditional definition of marriage stands in, in your way, in the way of people satisfying their desires in any way they see fit, then we have the right to change that law of God. And we have rejected the clear words of Scripture. We've considered them unnecessary to our nation's life and the nation that calls itself God's own and sang in front of the crowd last night in Wellington the national anthem, God of Nations, at our feet. There's a very nation that has placed God at its feet. Why? Because our desires and our longings to be Lord of our own lives and be Lord of marriage rather than allowing God to be Lord of marriage have become more important than God's will. Other examples would be premarital sex, which is fornication. Nothing wrong with sexual desire, but Satan tempts us to use it outside his will. Young people, Satan will tempt you to fulfill your desire outside God's will. Married person, God will tempt you to fulfill your desire outside God's will and God's purpose. He'll tempt you to do it through even the use of the computer screen and pixels on the screen. It's all a temptation to satisfy our desires outside the will of God. And every time we do it, we proclaim that we live by bread alone. Amen? That's what we do. For some, the desires for bread, satisfaction of their other desires means that they'll steal in order to fulfill it. They'll murder. They'll grumble. They'll manipulate. They'll defraud. They'll slander. They will lie. They'll do anything in order to satisfy their desires. And praise God, Jesus didn't. Jesus didn't. James 4 verse 1 says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask. And then he says that even our prayer life becomes perverted because our desires become placed above the will of God. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, James says. Wow, is this relevant or not? Let's come to temptation too. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now stop there. Just think about this. Then the devil took him and set him upon the pinnacle of the temple. You say, well, I thought he was led about in the wilderness. And my answer to you is I think that there is... There's obviously some mystery involved in here as to how these temptations actually worked out. How it was that Satan was enabled to do this, we're not sure of, but it certainly happened. He somehow took him to the holy city. Now think about the contrast. Here he is, he's been 40 days in the wilderness, and a trip to the holy land... And the holy, a trip to the holy city would be quite a contrast, wouldn't it? Satan is so wily that not only will he say things like, if you are the son of God, and appeal to things that were certainly true of Christ, not only will he um, work the timing of the temptation so that after the 40 days, when he's hungry, he comes with that temptation, he will also adjust the surroundings, the environment in which the temptation takes place. You say, what do you mean, Brian? G. Campbell Morgan put it this way. The choosing of the place is first evidence of the subtlety of the foe. How largely the mind is often influenced by surroundings. Changes that are no less than marvellous are brought about in the attitude of the mind by the change of bodily situation. Isn't that true? Location constantly stirs the pulses of patriotism. All the nature is made tender in the neighborhood of the old homestead. And some of the deepest springs of religious feeling well forth into new power in some place where long ago the streams of living water refreshed the thirsty spirit. It is always possible to revisit any place of tender, sacred. It is almost always impossible to revisit any place of tender, sacred or holy associations without being profoundly influence if you've ever been back to your childhood place or um, back to the place where you grew up or where you had significant um, memories from it influences you didn't it profoundly perhaps that's satan's method here satan not only took him to the holy city the old testament describes the jerusalem the joy of the whole earth right Place of place of wonder, a place of great significance. And the devil took him to the temple and set him upon the wing of a temple, or the pinnacle of the temple. You say, well, where is this? Well, again, we don't know exactly, but some Bible um, students have, throughout the years, made the claim that it's the eastern. Um, side of the temple, the eastern corner of the temple. And obviously this is modern day, but 
um, and things have changed changed over many years. Um, so this is a view of the eastern part of the. Here's another view. Josephus, the Jewish historian of the time, uh, spoke about this uh, place. He said that upon this eastern extremity of that portico, anyone looking down would be giddy, while his sight could not reach to such an immense depth, which was a drop of some 450 feet down to the Kidron Valley below. We're talking a huge height here. There's some other Bible commentators which would say it was the western um, corner, the other corner, uh, but we don't really know. It was certainly connected with the temple. He said, what's the temptation here, Brian? He says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And he quotes from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You say, what's the temptation? Well, here is Christ, and he is the Messiah. And what better way, according to Satan, to uh, promote his mission than to put God to the test in such a way that he puts his life in peril and forces God to send his angels to save him in some kind of miraculous deliverance where all the worshippers in Jerusalem would say, wow, what an amazing thing to witness. This really must be this Messiah rather than follow the path which the Father had laid out for his ministry. A path of patience, of um, a path of um, more ordinary means compared to something straight away at this point in his ministry. You see, in the first temptation, it was like, don't trust God. In the second temptation, it was, trust God where you shouldn't trust God. Satan's so wily, isn't he? Don't trust God. Provide your own needs. Now he goes to the other end of the extreme and he says, trust God for something that was, and Jesus knew it was sinful. And so Jesus answered again from the book of Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Notice that Jesus uses the word again there in verse 7. Here's Satan quoting scripture. And what I love about this is that Satan says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he, you want to quote scripture? I'll quote some scripture to you. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. He quotes from Psalm 91. But Jesus' reply to him was this word, again. Again it is written. And what Jesus does is he compares scripture with scripture to show the error of the text which Satan had presented to him. You see that? And often it's the case that every cult or every false teacher, every false teaching there is, will often just pull out Bible verses from their context, rip them out and say, there you go, here's a Bible text to um, justify my teaching. And it reminds us that we are not to do that. We are not to play Russian roulette with the scriptures. We are not to uh, take out a verse and just use it and twist it according to what we want it to say, like Satan did. 
We play Satan's game when we do that. Um, Someone said that a text removed from its context is a pretext for error. A text removed from its context is merely a pretext for some kind of error, some kind of excuse for error. Campbell Morgan again says, what infinite value there is in that word again. How excellent a thing it would be if the whole church of Christ had learned that no law of life may be based upon an isolated text. It is ever necessary to discover the very varied sides of truth, for these limit each other's operation and create the impregnable stronghold of safety for the soul of man. He's right. We need to know all of the word of God so that when we hear one verse of scripture, we can compare scripture with scripture to get the balance of truth, right? Many books that have been written on one verse of scripture, which is perhaps a minor point in scripture, and it's been made a major when it should never have been given that specialty. We need to be like the Bereans of who Paul said in Acts 17. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Is, Is that your approach to the word of God? Is it the pattern of your life to pour over scripture so that you familiarize yourself with all of scripture and not just your hobby horse verses? So that when the temptation comes, you're able to take out the specific verse that has reference to the temptation like Christ did. He took up the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is not, it's not like, yeah, I've got my sword. I'm carrying my sword. No, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God and it's the word rhema. The word rhema. And we say, what is the rhema? Well, radio rhema, right? That's the same word that's used there. It's the specific statement that has reference to the specific temptation. Um, It's just why we need to know all of the Word of God. And just knowing the Word of God is not necessarily the sword of the Spirit. It's it's um, It's the assumption that my life is bounded by what the Word of God says. You see, Satan's answer, Jesus' answer to Satan was basically saying, this is what the Word of God says, and this is the parameter of my response. My faith believes this. My obedience follows this. This is how I will respond. And you notice that Satan didn't argue anymore after each temptation. It was decisive. He knew that Satan, uh, Christ was standing do your best Paul said to Timothy to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed rightly handling the word of truth therein lies our our task we can be tempted like this today you say how? well we can place ourselves in a reckless situation recklessly do it in a way that's contrary to God's word, believing that God will deliver us from it. God's word says that you're to marry only a believer, but it seems that there's no suitable believers around to marry, so I'll marry an unbeliever, contrary to what the word of God says, and I'll just trust that God will eventually save him. Have you heard that before? 
How many young people have bought that lie? It'll be okay. God will deliver me out of it. You're putting God to the test. You need to see it for what it is. You're deliberately rejecting the counsel of God's word, putting yourself in a situation which is contrary to scripture, and then asking God to bail you out when you should have never gone there in the beginning. God's word says that we are to be responsible and good stewards of our finances, giving careful thought to our financial decisions. But then a rich a get-rich-quick scheme presents itself with amazing offers and you recklessly plunge your finances into it in the hope that it or God will come through for you. You've set aside the principle of careful stewardship and you're hoping that God is going to excuse you and bail you out from your recklessness. But it's the same in ministry, isn't it? In, in positions of spiritual leadership, the you long for your church to grow. You long for people to respond. And so, because doing things the biblical way seems hard and doesn't seem to produce as much response as doing things by a worldly wise way, you abandon biblical principles, you adopt worldly methods in order to help God out. And then you ask God to bless the plans which were at the expense of his word and we attempted to do that some latest book that brought crowds of people into the church or saw some supposed truth some supposed fruit but it was at the expense of God's word his clear word temptation three temptation three verse eight Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Man, he is subtle. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. As a younger man, I I remember once reading a quote from a Bible commentary which basically just said Satan is a uh, just totally a liar at this point that he didn't Satan didn't own anything it wasn't his to give it's just ridiculous I'll give you all these things and this commentator was saying this kind of quote I read was saying that therein lay the the lie Satan didn't have anything to give but now having studied this a little bit more there was a reality to that You say, what do you mean? Well, Jesus described Satan in John chapter 12 as the prince of this world. And 1 John 5 verse 19 says this, shocking words, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There was a reality to this. That the kingdoms that were were built upon Satan's direction. That he is the prince of the power of the air, right? In Ephesians chapter 2. That people who are not in Christ are actually not neutrally kind of walking along and living their lives um, according to how they think. They're actually being governed by the prince of the power of the air according to their desires and their fallenness. This was a real offer. What's interesting to me 
is, if you go back to Psalm 2, here's the temptation. Psalm 2, the Father promised Christ this. Psalm 2 verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your what? heritage. In the ends of the earth, your possession. Christ knew that that was promised to him. And here comes Satan and he says, You can have it now. You can have it without the cross. What a temptation. It's interesting to me, Luke adds in verse 5, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Again, we're dealing with things beyond uh, the physical here. It's in the realm of the spiritual and there's a mystery here, but somehow Satan was able to flash before Christ all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory in a moment of time. And he said to you, all this authority and their glory will be given to you if you will worship me. It will all be yours. Just think about that in a moment of time. Perhaps there's a sense in which Satan didn't want to give Christ time to linger on that thought. Isn't that the way temptation comes to us? Somehow the temptation comes to us in a moment of time and at at first it's painted so flashy and so wonderful and so satisfying and it's, it's not gold but it glitters, right? At that moment when the temptation first comes to us, all we see is the glitter. But when we, if we stop and we step back from it and evaluate it and think through biblical principles, we can see the lies therein. And here's Satan showing Christ in a moment of time. Because the reality was that though Satan could have given those kingdoms, those kingdoms were kingdoms that were shot through with sin. They were divided. They were permeated with sin. They were the kingdoms of this world, whereas God had promised Christ a kingdom they were nothing compared to the true offer which would one day be given to him from the father it was a lie it was a lie and Christ knew it and there was no way that he would exchange homage to Satan for all the kingdoms of the world and their glory there would be no crown without a cross he knew that Luke 24, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? There is no crown without a cross before. Satan knew what was at stake. He knew that if he could get Christ to buy into this, then he was the Lord and the race that he had caused to fall into sin would now be totally his. Whereas if Satan lost, if Christ rejected this temptation, Satan was fighting for everything because he knew that one day if, if Christ resists, if Christ is triumphant, that all the spoils that he was currently owning in terms of the kingdoms of the world, and they were his in some, one sense, would be ripped from him. And so Satan knew what was at stake just like Christ. It is written, he says, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you 
serve. And then the triumph in verse 11. When the devil left him, what else could he do? Every temptation Christ resisted perfectly. And then behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What do you reckon the angels came with? Could it? We don't know. But could it be bread? And isn't there a wonderful truth there that when we resist temptation, we say no to our natural desires when they're outside the will of God, that God in his time will fulfill us. No good thing will he withhold from them whose walk is upright, Psalm 84 tells us. And therein lies the the issue in our lives. Do we believe God or do we believe Satan? Do we believe the promise of the word of God or do we believe the promise of sin? Faith says, I will believe the word of God. Faith says, I will believe the Father. I will follow his will. Unbelief says, I'll trust myself. Luke says in Luke 4.13, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, but then it says, until an opportune time. This would not be the last of Satan's attempts to thwart the ministry of the Son of God over the next three and a half years, but this was a foundational victory. A foundational victory. Satan would come with these same temptations all through the Gospels. Remember, even Peter would be used by Satan to try and avert him from the cross. And even when Christ was on the cross himself, the chief priests and the religious leaders would say, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Remember that? Satan, through the voice of the religious leaders, the mocking religious leaders, suggesting that he come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God, Satan's hiss once more. In closing today, you see two profound realities here. Beloved, see firstly your adversary. See the enemy of your souls. He would ruin and destroy you and ensure you to ensnare you to descend to hell with himself. He's cunning. He's the ancient serpent. He's subtle. He's perfected his temptations through thousands of years and he seeks to devour you. But also, see here your saviour. See here the one who conquered and triumphed and vanquished him. In your own strength, in my own strength, we're no match for Satan, but in the strength of Jesus' might, you can overcome. You can because of Jesus. He's provided all we need as believers to overcome temptation in our our day-to-day lives. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is the only solution in hope for a sinner enslaved to their sins and subject to a satanic master. Christ, the second Adam, the second man, triumphed where the first Adam fell in the garden. I say to you today, if you don't know this Christ, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You'll be saved. There is salvation in no one else. There's no one else that can defeat the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this world. But Christ has done it. Praise God on the cross. He died. He rose again. He conquered not only Satan, but sin and death forever. And if you know him, if you're in Christ, his victory is your victory. His death is yours. His resurrection, his life, 
is yours. Amen. Hallelujah. What a saviour. In closing today, I want to pray an old prayer, and I think this is fitting. It's Puritan prayer. Pray with me. Oh Father, I bless thee that the I bless thee that the issue of the battle between thyself and Satan has never been uncertain and will end in victory. We thank you, Lord, that Calvary broke the the dragon's head, and that we contend with a vanquished foe who, with all his subtlety and strength, has already been overcome. When I feel the serpent at my heel, may I remember him whose heel was bruised, but who, when bruised, broke the devil's head. My soul with inward joy extols the mighty conqueror. O Lord, heal us of any wounds received in the great conflict. If we've gathered defilement, if our faith has suffered damage, if our hope is less than bright, if our love is not fervent, if some creature comfort occupies our hearts, if our souls sink under the pressure of the fight, O Thou, whose every promise is balm, whose every touch is life, draw near to your weary warriors. Refresh us that we may rise again to wage the strife and never tire until our enemy is trodden down. Give us such fellowship with you that we may defy Satan, unbelief, the world, the flesh, with delight that comes not from a creature, in which a creature cannot mar. Give us a draught of the eternal fountain that lies in thy immutable, everlasting love and decree. And then, Lord, shall our hand never weaken. Then shall our feet never stumble, our sword never rust, our shield never rest, our helmet never shatter, and our breastplates never fall, as our strength rests in the power of your mind. And Father, I pray today that, Lord, you would indeed fulfill these things in our lives, strengthen our souls, Lord, in the spiritual battle, help us to see the spiritual beyond the physical, to live for the spiritual, to seek first the kingdom of God, and know that all the other things have fallen into place. We pray now in Jesus' name. May we encourage one another, Lord. May we pray with one another even before the service is over, Lord. Take an opportunity to pray with a brother or sister. May we be built up through being here today, we ask. We pray in Jesus' precious name. last song.